Uh, before we begin this morning, uh, I'd like to read this thank you card from Brother Jeremy Neighbors and uh, his fiance, uh, Sister Sarah Lopez. It says, to my family at Bethel Church, Sarah and I would like to express our thanks for the outpouring of love shown to us yesterday at our wedding shower. The effort and time put in to make it a success for us, we simply can't say thank you enough. Thank you so very much once again as we plan to put these love offerings toward our honeymoon. We love you all. In Christian love, Brother Jeremy and Sister Sarah. Thank you for the card. We appreciate you very much. Last Sunday, we introduced our subject by looking at Psalm 62, verses 11 and 12, where the writer tells us that power belongeth unto God. We attempted to use that to show how that God had power over life and does have power over life. We tried to show you that God's the author of life as he breathed in the nostrils the breath of life into Adam in the very beginning. But God has the power to shorten life. He can cause life to cease. God has power to extend life. He can extend it out beyond what would be if it were not for his gracious providence. God is able to sustain life by his power. Under trying circumstances when it requires a miraculous display of his providence. And God's able to restore life from the standpoint of raising people from the dead. This morning I'd like for us to go to the book of 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at an expression concerning God's power. It's described as divine power. As we begin reading in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter addresses those he's writing to as Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who obtain like precious faith. Now Peter wrote 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And he wrote both epistles to the same people. And that's important for you to understand that. We go back to chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Peter just simply says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the stranger scout throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Asia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's always important when you're reading the Bible that you want to determine indeed who is the writer. We know God's the author of all the Scripture, but He used men human writers to pin the words down. And then it's important we know who he's writing to. So Peter is writing to people he describes as strangers. He's writing to the elect of God. He's not writing to the world in general, nobody in particular. He's writing to the elect of God. And that time they were scattered. The Lord's people at that time were scattered due to sufferings and persecutions. So as we come to chapter 2, again he says Peter, but this time he uses the word servant. He didn't use that in the first epistle. Peter, a servant and an apostle of God and our Savior Jesus Christ through the righteousness of God. All right, that's how you obtain that like precious faith, through the righteousness of God. Now, it refers to Jesus as our Savior Jesus Christ. Sometimes the writers would just say Jesus or Jesus Christ, but here he specifically says our Savior Jesus Christ. Now, the people in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ looked upon different people, you might say, or professions, as being saviors. They looked at physicians as being a savior. When they were sick, they can go to a physician with the hope that that physician could do something for them to relieve them of their sickness and affliction. And they referred to them oftentimes as a savior. In other words, they looked to them for deliverance. 
And then they look to the generals of the army to lead their army. And hopefully in conflict and battle would bring victory and defeat their enemies. And they look to those generals as, as saviors. And then they were always in hope that the officials that were in charge might be wise officials because they wanted to be delivered from chaos and disorder. And the decisions of those officials, if they were wise, could help provide that. And they looked at sometimes as a savior. But there's never been a savior like Jesus. He was born a savior. He came to save. And he accomplished that. He saved his people from their sins. But we see that Jesus is all what I just mentioned. He's the great physician, is he not? In Isaiah chapter 53, we're told that the Lord had laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And by his stripes, we are healed. Also, the prophet Isaiah tells us that the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, a prophecy of Christ's coming. Isaiah chapter 61, that the spirit of the Lord God is upon me and anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, bring glad tidings to the meek and to heal the brokenhearted. Aren't you glad you got a physician in the Lord Jesus Christ? And then he's referred to in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10 as the captain of our salvation. Verse 9 says, We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with honor and glory, that he by the grace of God might taste death for every man, that is, every man that he died for, that's under consideration. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Jesus never lost a battle. Jesus certainly didn't lose the war. He destroyed Satan. And we have a victory over death, a victory over sin, a victory over the grave, a victory over the devil, and a victory over this world through the captain of our salvation. And then when it comes to the leadership of a wise official, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 33, verse 22, the writer says that the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. And that reminds me of the three branches of our government. I, I wondered if the founding fathers, when they were coming up with this, might just have read this text. Let's notice it again. So the Lord is our judge. There's your judicial branch. The Lord is our lawgiver. There's a legislative branch. And the Lord is our king. Uh, there's the executive branch. And we have total harmony in these three branches because Jesus is the head of all three of them. I don't know if there's ever been a time, and maybe it has been in times past, when there's much discord and disagreement and disunity in the three branches of government in the United States of America as it is today. But in the branches of God's government, that's simply not the case. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad he's the judge? We'll always make proper judgment. Aren't you glad that he's the lawgiver? There'll be no law on the books. That's not a righteous law. And as king, he shall save us. There's complete peace, harmony between all three branches of God's government. So he addresses this as a servant and apostle in the name of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, to them who obtain like precious faith. Now here's another description of people he's writing to. They've obtained like precious faith. How did they obtain it? They obtained it through the righteousness of God. 
That's the only way anybody obtains that faith. And Peter says, it's, it's precious faith. Then he says, grace and peace be multiplied unto you. That was always the prayer of Peter and Paul, that the grace and peace of God might be multiplied unto those that they were laboring among and preaching and teaching to. Then he says, according as his divine power hath given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Now, last week, Brother Tim opened up the services. In his message, he spoke from Romans 1.20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Now, how can you clearly see something invisible? <laughs> you see, that's not a contradiction. You see the things invisible because God's given you an eye of faith to use. For the invisible things of him from the creation are clearly seen, being made by the things that do appear. So we might what? Understand his eternal power and Godhead, so they're without excuse. So Paul describes the power of God there as eternal, the eternal power of God. And that eternal power of God is seen in, on display every single day we live, whether it be daytime or nighttime. It has been down through the century, ever since the beginning of time. But here the Apostle Peter refers to God's power as divine power. And it's divine power that had given us all things. Now sometimes the expression all things is found over 200 times in the Bible. It's used the majority of the time in a restricted sense. You've got to study the context see what the all things are. All things is oftentimes mentioned does not mean all things without exception. And that's important. You'll, you'll certainly get off on the wrong track in terms of scripture interpretation if you don't understand that. But right here all things means all things without exception. All things pertain to life and godliness come from God. All things that come that pertain to life and godliness, and I believe this is spiritual eternal life that's under consideration, although it will certainly apply to our natural life. But all things that pertain to life and godliness come from God, come from the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior, according, that means in harmony with, His divine power. Now, I want to go to Colossians 1 and 13 in the beginning. Here the apostle tells us that he, that is God, hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of God's dear son. And I like that expression, God's dear son. Not just God's son, but God's dear son. God's son was dear to him. And you're dear to him. But he says, God hath delivered us from the power of darkness. Now we got the power of darkness in contrast to the power of God, or the eternal power of God, or the divine power of God, the power of darkness. Now when it comes to light and darkness, the Bible will teach us, and our lives, our experience will teach us that life is always superior to darkness, right? Let's go to the book of Genesis, for example, in chapter 1. It begins like this, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was out form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. That's the first thing mentioned here is darkness. It was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Darkness did not prevent light from being manifest, did it? When he said, let there be light, there was light. And he goes on to say that God separated the light from the darkness. Here's day and night. And this was the evening and the morning of the first day. This is what happened on the first day of creation right here. Then we move over here to the fourth day of creation. In the fourth day of creation, 
God purposed to put firmament, put lights in the firmament up here in the, in the you know, the, into the heavens, into the, uh, the celestial heaven. He put lights in the firmament that it might give light here upon the earth. And he made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. The greater light, of course, is the moon. The lesser, excuse me, is the sun and the lesser light is the moon. So the sun rules day and the moon rules the night. And then he says, and he made the stars also. It's like, oh, by the way, just in case I forget, he made the stars as well. Okay. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ said in John 8, 12, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Excuse me. Uh, I am the light of the world. And he that walketh after me shall not walk in darkness, shall have the light of life. Now, while the sun rules the daytime and the moon rules the nighttime, Jesus Christ rules all things. As light of the world, he rules the daytime, he rules the nighttime, right? Now, in the book of Ecclesiastes 2 and 13, the wise man Solomon said, And I beheld, and I saw, that is, wisdom excelleth foolishness, so light excelleth darkness. Now, he makes a comparison here. He says that wisdom excels foolishness, just like light excelleth darkness. Of the two, light excels over darkness. So that's a principle we need to keep in mind. I come over to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. I find that when he got close to Calvary, the rulers of this world and the darkness of this world began to all join together against the Savior. And when the Lord Jesus Christ was suspended between heaven and earth, crucified between heaven and earth, he was there from the ninth hour, excuse me, from the third hour to the ninth hour, he's there for six hours. And from the ninth hour to the twelfth hour, there was light, but from the twelfth hour to the ninth hour, excuse me, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness. And the Bible didn't just say it was darkness in the land of Palestine. It says it was darkness over the, all the earth. The entire earth came under darkness in the daytime between 12 and 3. The sixth hour in the Jewish way of counting time is 12 o'clock and the ninth hour is 3 p.m. Now notice the very last thing Jesus said before the three hours of darkness started. He speaks to a thief. He says, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. The very last words of Jesus Christ while it was still light. And from 12 to 3, it becomes darkness. Darkness covers the whole earth. And transaction takes place here between heaven and earth as God will put the sins and iniquities of all the elect family of God to his son. He would carry our sins in his own body to the tree of the cross. And the righteous of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be imputed to the Savior. The Lord is taken off that cross by Joseph Arimathea, a rich man who came to the Lord Jesus Christ and begged the body of Jesus. And Pilate, he sent to see if he was already dead, and he was quite amazed because he had sent some soldiers out there to bring about a quicker death. And the instruction of the soldiers was to break the legs of the thieves and the Lord Jesus Christ. They broke the legs of the thieves, but they did not break the legs of the Lord Jesus Christ because he was already dead. He laid his life down. The two thieves were not. And then the soldiers did something they were not commanded to do. They took a sword and pierced his side. They were not commanded to do that. They did that because the prophet had said his side shall be pierced. 
So in other words, for the scripture to be fulfilled, the soldiers did something they were not even instructed to do. They took a sword and pierced his side. They had no idea in the world they were fulfilling scripture. He's taken off the cross and put into a barred tomb and a great rock is rolled, you know, after he's placed in there to close it off. I would say there's darkness inside there, wouldn't you? There are no windows to this sepulchre. There's no windows to this tomb. I'd say it was totally and complete darkness where the Lord Jesus Christ was laying when he was buried there after being taken off that tomb and placed in there. But after three days and three nights, 72 hours later, light arose. He that's light personified, self-resurrected. And all of a sudden, there's a lot of light in that sepulcher. <laughs> that darkness is gone, I believe. And then the Lord just came out of the sepulcher came out of the tomb. Now, when Mary Magdalene came on the first day of the week, they had a concern. They, when they planned to go there, they thought, well, who's going to roll the, the rock away? When they got there, the rock was rolled away. And I think there's a practical lesson in that. How many times have we fallen short in doing something God would have us to do because we tried to figure out some way we couldn't do it? I've had people decide midweek not to come to church on Sunday because they had a headache. I mentioned that to you in times past. His sister down in Florida, beautiful sister, wonderful sister, visiting with her on Wednesday. She said she had a bad headache. Now she'll be at church on Sunday. I said, I'll run and get you some extra strength Tylenol. We'll solve the problem. Some people just looking for ways to get out of coming to church. But they didn't, that didn't stop them. They went ahead anyhow. And lo and behold, when they got there, God had intervened and God had rolled the rock back. He sent two angels. They rolled the rock back and the tomb was empty. Light conquered darkness. The Lord Jesus Christ is the light of life, life personified, conquered the darkness of sin, conquered the darkness of death, conquered the darkness of this world, conquered the darkness of Satan himself, and emerged victorious. So we look at this text over here again in Colossians 1.13. He said, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness? That's our only hope to be delivered from the power of darkness of our dark heart, our dark lives, our dark world is through Jesus Christ. And he hath delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us in the kingdom of his dear son. The word translate is used here to express the new birth, being born from above, born again. When you're born in the spirit of God, you're a passive in the work. When something is translated, what is being translated is passive in the work. The translator is active, but the translatee, if that's a word, uh, is passive in the work. And we're passive in this work of regeneration. We don't assist God. We don't help God. We don't cooperate with God. There's no assistance, cooperation in our spirit toward God because there's no love of God in our hearts. There's no interest in our God in our hearts for God because we're dead in trespasses and in sins. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. Aren't you glad of that? Because the power of darkness is great, but God has delivered us from us. And he has translated us in the kingdom of his dear son. According to his divine power, he hath given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Prior to this translation, you didn't have eternal life. You had natural life, but you didn't have eternal life. The Lord Jesus Christ himself said in John chapter 5, verse 25, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, the hours come, future now is present, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Now here, the dead hear. How can the dead hear? Because the voice that they hear is life-giving. 
And Jesus spoke it just like he did at the grave of Lazarus. If anybody would study the, the, the episode or, or the events in Lazarus' life after he died and buried and Christ got there about four days later, it would help you understand the principles of the doctrine of grace. Because the Lord gets here, there's a man dead, been dead about four days. Of course, he's no more deader at four days than he was at one day. There's no such thing as dead, deader, and deadest. You're either dead or you're not. All right? So here's a man dead. He's no more dead in four days than he was at one day. But he's dead. At the same time, he's just as dead. <laughs> he may not be dead, but he's just as dead. And Jesus Christ approaches. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And a man that was dead actually heard the voice of Jesus Christ. Think about that for just a minute. That's a miraculous event, is it not? And everybody that's been born in the Spirit of God, just like Lazarus, when they were in the state of death in sin, they heard the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they lived. God raised him from that state of death and sin to a state of life in Jesus Christ. Now the Apostle Peter says, according in harmony as God, you know, as God has given us all things that pertain to life in God, so according to his divine power, we're talking about the divine power of God in this work right here. Now with this thought, I want to take us over here to the book of Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 19. And the Apostle Paul starts this off. It sounds like a question, but it's not. He says, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? According to the work of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Paul used the word power twice. It starts off usually with the word what. You're expecting a question mark at the end, but there's no question mark. Paul is making a statement here to provoke your mind to think. What is the exceeding greatness of his power? Notice how he describes the power of God here. It's great, but it's exceeding great. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? Not to everybody, but to usward who believe. That's who he's writing it to. Do you believe today? I believe you do, or you wouldn't be here. So this text is to you, and I hope this text is to me. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? You just can't believe because somebody tells you you ought to believe. If somebody tells somebody who's not been born in the Spirit of God, all they got to do is believe. They, they can't believe from the heart. They might entertain an intellectual exercise of belief, but not from the heart. Because the heart says there is no God. Psalms 14.1 says the fool has said where? Right in his heart that there is no God. And you'll never convince him of anything different from that. Never. You can't believe just because somebody tells you to believe. You believe things based upon evidence. That's right. You, you, you believe based on evidence. So what evidence do you have to believe? You've got something right inside here called the Spirit of God. That's what enables you to believe. For the Spirit beareth witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. Romans 8, 16. So he says, to usward who believe, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward to believe according to the work of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead? Now before we go any further in this, I want to go back and review a few things found in Ephesians chapter 1. The first chapter of Ephesians is one of the richest chapters in the Bible. It's like when you read Ephesians chapter 1, you've just opened up the checkbook of heaven. And you find you're in good shape. <laughs> you ever opened up the checkbook and found out you want such a good shape? <laughs> you know, uh, I've told you this before. 
But I've balanced my checkbooks ever since I was 16 years old and I've never been out a penny. It may take me a few minutes, it may take me long a few minutes, but I'm going to balance it before I quit. And in doing that, there's been times I forgot to put something down and I thought maybe I had $200 more than I did. Now that's disappointing. <laughs> All of a sudden you say, I'm $200 worse off than I thought I was. But there have been times the opposite took place. And boy, that made me feel good. I got $200 more than I thought I had. <laughs> but God's checkbook is always balanced. Let's look, review a few things here in this first chapter of the book of Ephesians. It starts off in verse 3. It said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Now, we're talking here specifically about spiritual blessings. Now, we could talk a long time on natural blessings, couldn't we? On the natural blessings of God. When I, you know, when I try to thank God at our meal time three times a day, I try to thank him for the food, but I try to thank him for the clothing and the raiment and all the things beyond that. How much more have we been blessed with in our lifetime beyond the basics and the necessities? Now, sometimes we let that get in our way, don't we? Prosperity is not a friend to spirituality. I can tell you that now. It just isn't. It distracts us, pulls us away. But here we're talking about spiritual blessings. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, we should be holy without blame before him in love. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ himself, according to the riches of his grace. We got riches in here, grace in here. Praise to the glory of his grace when he made us accepted to the in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Now, what do we have so far here? We have the very fact that God chose us in Christ for the foundation of the world, that God has predestinated us in the adoption of children according to the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's made us accepted in the beloved. If he hadn't made you accepted in the beloved, you'll never be in the beloved. We're all in the beloved because we've been made accepted in the beloved. And then we have redemption. How? Through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. This is getting pretty interesting to me. Then he speaks about the wisdom and prudence of God in this matter. And then we find in verse 9, where he says, For he hath revealed unto us the mystery of his will, which had been kept hid in times gone and past. So God's will has been a mystery, but God now has begun to reveal it to us in the New Testament day right here. And you come to verse 10, he says, In whom we've obtained an inheritance. Now notice the word obtained, it's got an ED on it. It sounds like we already have it, don't it? Doesn't it? You will not come into full possession of your inheritance, you get the glory some sweet day. But it's so sure, God just writes it in the past tense. I love that. It's just like Romans 8, 29 and 30. But whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of the Son. He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And over whom he did predestinate, he, then he also called, E.D. And over whom he called, he also justified, E.D. And over he justified, then he also glorified, E.D. Are you glorified yet? Don't think so. You don't look glorified to me. And I know I don't look glorified to you. You don't even have to say it. I already know it. But it's so sure that he writes it in the past, completed sense, because it cannot fail to happen. It cannot fail to come to pass, you see. In whom we've obtained, E.D., an inheritance, being predestinated according to him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. 
God has a counsel, God has a will, and God works that counsel and that will, that one day we'll come into full possession of an inheritance. And he says that we should be to the praise of the glory of his grace, who first trusted in Christ. I believe he's talking about the apostles here. And he says, in whom you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now, when did you trust? When you heard the word of truth, the gospel, the good news, the glad tidings of your salvation. When it's preached properly, when it's preached biblically, when it's preached scripturally, when it's preached correctly, the gospel is always good news and glad tidings to the child of God. It's about the victorious work of Jesus Christ. It's about the electing love of God. It's about the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. It's about our victory, my friends, over sin, our victory over death, our victory over the devil and the world. And one day, he's going to bring us right into portals of glory. And if that's not good news and glad tidings, you'll have to try to find it somewhere else. But you look high and low, and you're never going to find anything to equal it. In whom you also trusted. When? After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And then, having believed it, you're sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Now, there's two types of sealings taught in the Bible, both here in the book of Ephesians. We just fast forward over here to Ephesians 4.30. And here it says, for you have been sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. All right, he said, let no uh, corrupt communication come out of your mouth, for you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now, I believe every single child, every elect family of God is sealed with that sealing. But here's a different sealing over here in Ephesians chapter 1. This sealing takes place after you've heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believe that truth. And you believe those good news and glad tidings. Oh, what a blessing it is to be blessed of God, to be exposed to the truth of God's sovereign grace and God's everlasting love. And God's exceeding and great and precious promises to his children here in this life. Oh, that's when you, you know you can put your trust in a God like that. You can lean upon him and not worry about him uh, uh, not being able to hold the weight. I'm telling you, Christ can hold the weight. <laughs> He's got shoulders that's broad. That's why you read in Isaiah 9, 6, And thus a child is born, thus a son is given, and the government should be upon his shoulders. It's not on my shoulders, it's not on your shoulders, it's on the shoulders of Christ. And there's not a load so heavy that his shoulders can't hold and bear it up. And that's why his name is called Wonderful and Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Then he says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Okay, this he says, let me go back here, he says, when you've heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation... He goes on to describe that as being the earnest of your inheritance. Now, we've got the word inheritance again. The earnest of something. The word earnest shows your sincerity. It shows the seriousness and sincerity that you have in a situation. That's a real estate term. When you go to buy a house, uh, they expect you to put some, some certain amount of money down on it to convince them you're serious. <laughs> and then talking more than this, 10 bucks. They want to know the degree of your sincerity. The more you put down, the higher degree of sincerity goes up in their mind. You put a lot down, they're pretty convinced. You want this house. You want this property, you see. That's the earnest, earnest money. Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the earnest of your inheritance. It's just giving you a foretaste of things to come. Isn't that great? 
I, I remember growing up in the household, my mother was one of the best cooks uh, uh, I've ever sat down at the table with. And you've heard me say that before, but it's a fact. I can line up witnesses uh, as long as you want. <laughs> and when she'd make the cakes and she'd put the, you know, the icing on the cake, uh, when, when she got it all out of there, she let me take that bowl, and I just have to be frank with you here this morning, I just licked it out. And it was good. <laughs> and I already had a little foretaste of what was going to come in a couple hours when that cake came out of the oven. I already knew ahead of time, and I was just licking my chops in anticipation of that cake coming out of that oven. And that's what the gospel is. It's the earnest of your inheritance. It's a foretaste of what you can anticipate to come. If you think this is good here, when God blesses us with his presence and his spirit, you think this is good here, it's nothing compared to what you're going to enjoy when you get the glory. <laughs> oh, if it, it, it goes beyond my comprehension. My little mind can't wrap around it. Oh, but I like trying it. <laughs> I sure do. <laughs> I enjoy doing that. Now, if you were paying close attention to me, I used a phrase three times in the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. It was to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. Everything's to the praise of the glory of God. So we get down to verse 19. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? He says his power is great. What's the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? According in harmony with his mighty power. Now we have eternal power, we have divine power, and we have mighty power. And two or three weeks ago, I looked at that word might just for a little bit. I want to just refresh your mind on something about that. The word might in everyday conversation we have here, we use it like the word maybe. You say, well, I might go. It just means you may maybe go. <laughs> you know what I mean? But when the Bible uses the word might in connection with God, there's no maybe to it. And when you're talking about this word as it refers to God, you got the word might, and you throw a Y on the end of it, you got mighty. Throw an A-L on the front of it, you got almighty. So the Bible talks about God in the almighty, the mighty, or almighty, the might, and the mighty. In Genesis 17, 1, God appeared unto Abraham as God Almighty. You know why? Because he made a promise he's going to have a child when he's 100 years old. That takes some almighty power. And Sarah would have a child when she was 90, so he appeared as God Almighty. Revelation 1, 8, the Lord Jesus Christ said, I'm the first and the last. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He says, I, I'm he that is and was and is to come, the Lord God Almighty. He was almighty in the past, he's almighty in the present, he'll be almighty in the future. Hebrews 13, 8 says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You don't have to worry about him not being the almighty tomorrow. He'll be almighty tomorrow. He'll be almighty next week, he'll be almighty next month, he'll be almighty next year, he'll be almighty until the end of time, he'll be almighty and he has the ascension to come down here and call our bodies out of the grave and take us home to glory, he'll be the almighty then. I wouldn't preach to you any other kind of God. I would never preach to you that God is not the almighty God. And it's by his might that we're saved. It's not a maybe salvation, it's a might salvation. They're not synonymous terms. You look at Romans 8, 29, over whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to him his son. He, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You think he, that word might means maybe there? 
just maybe he'll be the firstborn among many brethren? I think not. That's a sure thing. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, Paul says, Husband, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That he might sanctify it by the washing of water by the word. Is that a maybe sanctification or a might sanctification? That he might present himself, his bride to him, a glorious bride without spot, without blemish. That he might present himself. Is that a maybe or is that a might? I don't believe in maybe salvation. I believe in might salvation. Because that word might means power. And it has reference to God in his work. When you read that word might, like 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for he became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the rights of God in him. He didn't say he became sin for us who knew no sin, that we maybe might be made the rights of God in him. It's not a maybe salvation, it's a might salvation, and the might has reference to the power of God. But we use the word might like we use the word maybe all the time. Are you going... Tomorrow, so-and-so, well, I might. You going to be at church Sunday? Well, I'm thinking about it. If it ain't raining, I mean, if, if it ain't raining or if it's, I don't know, I'll think of something not to go. But anyway, I might show up. That's just telling me in a real nice way, Brother Lawrence, don't look for me. I don't like that might stuff. <laughs> I, like, I like that sure stuff. Okay? Now, talking about the mighty power of God, you know how the Old Testament saints measured the mighty power of God? They measured it on the basis of creation, number one. Creation. Look over here in Isaiah chapter 40 just for a moment. In verse 12 in the book of Isaiah, it says, He shall walk measure the waters in the hollow of his hand. Takes a pretty big hand to do that. He shall measure the waters in the hollow of his hand. He hath met out, that's M-E-T-E, it means with arrangement and order. He hath met out heaven with a span, which is, spread your finger, hand is from the thumb to the little finger. He's measured out heaven, heaven in an orderly, arranged way, like that. Okay? It says, he hath comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure. He's weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Visualize that, if you will, please. Now come to verse 22. And just above that, he's asked a question, who will you liken God unto? Who will you compare him to? So I come to verse 22, and it says, he sitteth upon the circle of the earth. You know, for a long time after creation, man thought the earth was flat. You'd be surprised how many people believe that today. That the earth is flat. And if you started going in a certain direction, you went so far, you'd just phew, fall off. They believed that till 1521, 1522, and a man by the name of Ferdinand Magellan. I remember a little bit from history. Magellan circled the earth. Now, he personally didn't quite make it. He got killed in the Philippines in battle. But until that time, he proved that the earth was circular. But we didn't have to wait to 1521, did we? Couldn't we go back 2,000 years? That's about the time Isaiah, maybe 2,200 years. Isaiah says he sitteth upon the circle of the earth. That sounds like it's round to me. He sitteth upon the circle of the earth and all the inhabitants like grasshoppers. And he stretches out the heavens and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. 
They measured God's power by creation. And here Isaiah just presents it to us in a very beautiful way, doesn't he? Can you not see that? He spreads that, he, he spans the heaven, he stretches out the heavens, and then he takes and spreads it like a tent to dwell in. <laughs> That's why I like reading the Old Testament. You're not going to find that in New Testament language. You find it over here in the Old Testament, though. Psalms 19, 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firm that showeth his handiwork. Day and the day utter speech and night and night showeth knowledge. There's no voice, there's no uh, language where their voice is not heard. There's a message in the creation. But I was looking at Psalms 8, 3, when David says, When I behold thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, I thought, well, where's the sun? Hadn't thought about it before. Where's the sun? When I behold the moon and the stars, your handiwork, the work of your fingers, when I behold the moon and the stars, he said, what is man that thou art mindful of him? So why didn't he mention the sun? Well, David was a shepherd boy. And shepherds got in their sheep in the daytime. He would look out like this, I believe, in the daytime. Observe his sheep. See if any needed special attention, et cetera, et cetera. Want to be sure they were fed properly and watered properly and protected from the predators, et cetera. He's not looking up so much he's looking out. But at nighttime, the shepherd laid down on the ground to sleep, and he's laying on his back, and his face and his eyes are looking upward, aren't they? So what's he going to see at nighttime? He's going to see the moon. He's going to see the stars. He says, when I consider the moon and the stars, your handiwork, the work of your fingers, that's just finger work with God. When I consider all that, he says, what is man? What is man? It's nothing. You look back at Isaiah 40, I think it's in verse 17, he says, all the nations before him are as nothing as a drop in the bucket. They're all as nothing and they're less than nothing in vanity. Boy, that's not speaking too high of ourselves, is it? That's the truth. That's what we are in the sight of God from the standpoint of his, his greatness and His power and who we are on this earth and man by nature. So they measured by creation, but they also measured God's power as was displayed when He brought Israel out of the land of Egypt and sent the ten plagues. And He brought them out totally and complete without the loss of one, brought them across the Red Sea, he told Moses, tell the people, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And God sent a strong east wind that blew upon the Red Sea. And the Red Sea parted two great walls of water. And Israel crossed dry shot to the other side. Not one was left behind. They were totally and completely delivered. And that's a picture of our preservation in Jesus Christ. Our total salvation, our complete salvation in the Son of God. They measured God's power by that. How do, how do New Testament saints measure the power of God today? They measure it by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the work of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and dominion uh, uh, on this earth and above every name, not only named in this world but also in the world to come. What language that is. That's how you measure the power of God today, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
The Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, he, uh, he uh, gives a lesson on the subject of water baptism. He says when we're baptized, he compares it to Noah and the ark. He's a like figure, wherein Noah you know, uh, was saved by water and, and the ark, etc. He says, not by the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but there's a clear conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, who is on the right hand of God, above all principalities and powers and dominions. We measure the power of God based on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ self-resurrected out of there. He conquered death. He conquered the grave. He conquered Satan and sin and the world which we live in here. That's how we measure the greatness and the power of God today. So we notice here, what is the greatness of his power to us who believe according to the work of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised from the dead? He's saying the same power. And by the way, that word power is where we get our English word dynamite from. Dynamite. <laughs> That's when Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, Knowing, brother, the beloved, your election of God for our gospel came not to you in word only, but it came in power. It came in dynamite. It came in power. It came in the Holy Ghost. It came in much assurance. Look at the three benefits of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Oh, it comes in the word. Never, never think it doesn't come in the word if the word is not preached. Paul told Timothy, preach the word. Be it an in season, out of season. But when the word is preached under the influence of the spirit of God, I wish we all could just fully comprehend what a miraculous work and act that is. People say, Brother Lawrence, do you believe in God works miracles today? Well, if you ever hear me preach, it's a miracle. <laughs> That's the fact. Of course, I'm not throwing off on me. I'm talking about every preacher. <laughs> a preacher can't preach unless he's called of God to begin with, and then he still can't preach unless God's pleased to bless his gift to be used in an edifying manner and an edifying way. Preaching is not just public speaking. It's just not uh, uh, giving a speech or whatever. It's taking the Word of God, expanding on the Word of God under the influence of the Spirit of God in such a manner and way that it reaches right into your hearts and gives you comfort and gives you encouragement and gives you peace and consolation and gives you motivation. See, the gospel when it's preached, it ought to educate your mind. It ought to comfort your heart and it ought to give a swift kick in a certain part of the body and get you on the move. Motivation, in other words, brother. What's it take to motivate God's people today? If the truth of God's wonderful grace and his everlasting love will not motivate you, motivate me to do better and try to be more interested and more zealous and more faithful and more dedicated uh, and to put the things of this world and this life behind me, I don't know what will. It's like the spoke of a wheel I oftentimes think about. Or a wheel with spokes, rather, like a wagon wheel. In the midst of that wagon wheel, there's a hub. And between the hub and the rim are spokes. And I like to think about that hub being the Lord Jesus Christ. If I had time this morning, I'd preach to you a little bit on the Christ being in the midst. But I don't have the time this morning. But it'll, it'll save, it won't spoil and so Christ is that hub, and these spokes represent important things in our life. Correct? But see, the Lord and his church in the lives of a lot of people is not the hub, it's the spoke. It's an important thing, it's just not the most important. If he's not the hub, you got something out of whack. He's to be the most important. 
and everything else revolves around him. Doesn't revolve around work, doesn't revolve around finances, doesn't revolve around recreation, doesn't revolve around politics, doesn't revolve around whatever and who whatever, or whoever. Revolves around the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. According to his divine power, hath given unto us all things, not some things, all things that pertain to life and godliness, whatever that is. And I only, only scratch the surface on it. So whatever it is, it's all according to his divine power. Brother Junior, you got me one? All right, I guess we know that one. Ha, 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 ha.